this program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman Program, the David Pakman Show, the Media Matters Minute, the Majority Report, Counterspin, Jim Hightower, and the Young Turks. And stay tuned at the end for a bunch of really intelligent comments about race, privilege, and drones. When was the last time your foot had the flu? You don't get flu in your foot. You, you get it through your whole body. Similarly, economies are systemic. When an, when, a, when an economy is in recession, the private sector is in recession, the public sector is in recession, everything is being affected by that recession. Everything has to participate in responding to that. To say, oh, we just need to wait for the, public, for the, for the private sector. This was Herbert Hoover's plan in 1929. He said, oh, you know, in fact, his, his, uh, was it Andrew Mellon was his, uh, Secretary of, of, uh, of Treasury, as I recall, said, you know, liquidate everything, liquidate labor, liquidate equity, liquidate, and he went through a list. Basically, in other words, let it all fall. And it will eventually resolve itself. Who was it? Andrew. Andrew Mellon. Thank you very much. I knew it was the, that Mellon guy. Back in the twenties, you know, this is a billionaire banker. I mean, sort of like Hank Paulson, who who got five hundred million bucks from uh, from uh, Goldman Sachs, and then uh, they, they, they they actually had to change the rules so that he could sell it tax free. Didn't have to. I mean, they did, <clears throat> so he could join the cabinet. Man, a half a billion dollars. That's that's that was the going away gift. Anyhow, what constrains the ability to create money to, to just say, okay, we're going to increase, you know, the government's going to spend $2 trillion here and we're just going to create it. The three things that constrain it are inflation, exchange rates, and unemployment. And we don't have inflation. Our exchange rates are healthy. In fact, you could argue that if our exchange rates were to decline, in other words, if the dollar was to become worth less money relative to other currencies, that would actually help our trade deficit. In fact, it would help it rather dramatically. It would make imported things more expensive. It would make exported things less expensive. Boom. Good thing. And for the guy who called earlier and said, oh, you know, you know you're know, talking about inflation here. No, we're ta- I, you know, because he was talking about the prices of commodities in the United States. And I'm saying that's not inflation. That's, th- that's the increase in prices of commodities. Yes, commodities are going up in price. But if inflation meant the debasement of our currency then you wouldn't just see the price of commodities go up. You would see the value of the dollar relative to everything else on earth going down, and that's not happening. Although, you know, we could make that happen. But the three the three things that restrain it are inflation, exchange rates, and unemployment. In other words, we need to be spending government money to put people to work as the employer of, the last, of last resort until... We reach full employment. At that point, we stop. Because if you spend beyond that point, then you will have inflation. There's a natural barrier. This is balance sheet math. This is double entry bookkeeping. So anyhow, end of end of rant. We'll, we'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna be we're gonna be doing modern monetary theory 101 here for the next I don't know year. On this program, I mean, I, I just want to start digging into this stuff, 
little by little and exposing you to some of the concepts as I'm learning them along with you in many cases. And so occasionally I'm going to get things a little wrong, but I think I'm getting my hands around some of these concepts in a pretty solid way. And we're going to be getting guests on regularly and uh, who can talk about these things in ways that make sense because I believe that this it's referred to as neo-Keynesianism, the new Keynesianism. This is because, you know, Keynes' theories worked great, but they worked great in a world where our we were the sovereign issue of our currency, but because of Bretton Woods, uh, well, actually, Bretton Woods came after, you know, Keynes was doing his thing, but, but you know, Bretton Woods is where 40, what was it, 44 nations, I think, got together and, and 43 of them agreed to peg their 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 value, their currency to the value of the dollar, and then we agreed that we would peg the value of the dollar to the value of gold. Okay, that was Bretton Woods. It's after World War II. And and but and prior to that, we were to a certain extent we were pegging the value of our dollar to the value of gold, and thus all the gold in Fort Knox and all that quack quack quack. Nixon took us off that in '71. It's a new world, so we need a new form of Keynesianism, a new economics, and this is it: modern monetary theory. In my mind, not speaking for it, speaking of it. It's a brand new day. The sun is shining. It's a brand new. First time in such a long, long time, I know I'll be okay. President Obama, in his State of the Union address, as I mentioned earlier, suggested increasing the federal minimum wage to $9 an hour from the current rate of $7.25 an hour. Let's listen to what he had to say. Let's declare that in the wealthiest nation on earth, no one who works full-time should have to live in poverty and raise the federal minimum wage to $9 an hour. A lot of people like that. A lot of people standing and clapping. Not John Boehner. Get that done. Yeah. I want to dive into the $9 an hour minimum wage a little bit. And I'm going to give you the numbers for this. And th I am not making a case. I'm not making any opinion simply by giving you the numbers of what this works out to. Let's put this up in time. If we go from a $7.25 an hour to $9 an hour minimum wage, if you assume a full-time employee working 40 hours a week, 50 paid weeks per year, okay? Uh, at $7.25 an hour, minus taxes, that's just under $13,000 a year, net. Again, this is already taking taxes out, um, which is uh, just over $1,000 a month. And at $9 an hour, taking out taxes, it's about $15,750 net. So this is an extra about $3,000 or about an extra $59 per working week. So now that we have the actual numbers in front of us, Lewis, is this a lot the way Republicans are acting as if it is? Or is this really not a lot and maybe not even enough? We know that this wouldn't even really get us to 1968 minimum wage levels if you take into consideration inflation. So how are we to interpret this? How do you interpret the $9 an hour mark? Uh, I mean, first of all, I think it's an extra $3,000 going to really be the thing that helps these families uh, get through. I can understand why Republicans would say, 
this is going to hurt small business, mm. but all they support is large business. Uh, so the whole thing is, is kind of confusing. So there's a couple things to think about here. Number one is it's not about it's it's not necessarily about what fifty nine dollars a week means to a person or a family, but it's more about an extra three thousand dollars every year that people working at minimum wage will most most likely not save but put right back into the economy. And the aggregate effect of that would be significant. Now let's play out the two options, right? The Republican idea is you raise the minimum wage, the company pays more but doesn't make any more, they have less money, so they hire less people, unemployment goes up, less people have jobs with which they make money to spend, so on and so forth. Now option two is the, the democratic idea, right? Which is that the company pays more, the employees have more money to spend, so they buy more stuff because these aren't people who are saving money, for the most part, making companies more money so they can actually hire more people, so those people make more, and they spend more, and then they hire more, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is that neither of these systems, neither of these paradigms, is completely accurate in a vacuum, right? We can all see how if you mandate the minimum wage is now $30 in this economy, it won't work. It just won't work. But that's the work. exact type of straw man argument that is But hold on a second, Natan, but I'm not done. We can also all see how doing the Michelle Bachman strategy of reducing to $2 an hour also won't work. In other words, the market, the idea that the market will just regulate the right wage is, is simply not feasible. So really, we just have to think critically about what combination of policies, just debating the number, 9, 7, 25, 30, or 2, just that is not alone, Natan, the solution, nor the problem. Well, what, it, what needs to happen is not to set it at a particular number for the foreseeable future, but to just tie it to cost of living increases and inflation. I mean, what we're talking about is a minimum wage. We're not talking about a good wage or a great wage. Right. The minimum wage should provide for at least what the federal poverty line is, which it doesn't currently do. Right. But I think it's especially important to raise the minimum wage, given that unions are being busted by right-to-work laws. So if you're not going to have unions and you're going to have fewer unions – you're basically not going to have a way to ensure that your workforce has the ability to enter the middle class and to pay for products, which is going to hurt the whole economy by reducing demand. So I think it's just basic logic that you need to at least provide a minimum wage that will get you at or above the poverty line. I agree with Natan. And couldn't we just back up and say, well, shouldn't minimum wage at least reflect inflation over right. the past X number Which of would years? be, I think, about 1070 right I mean, now. come on. If that's not common sense, I don't know what is. No question about it. I think the important thing is for people, for I, I support this, and I actually think it should be inflation adjusted up to 1070. Uh, that being said, I just think that conversations which only look at, at hiring in the context of what the minimum wage is are not effective conversations. They're not really going to get to any solutions, and really solutions are what the focus should be on. Agreed. This is a Media Matters Minute. I'm Carlos Maza. In his annual State of the Union address, President Obama proposed raising the minimum wage from $7.25 to $9 an hour to help stimulate economic growth. Following the speech, Fox News hosts were quick to attack the president's proposal. Here's Brett Baer. Typically, small businesses, many Republicans push back on this, saying it will lead companies to cut back, lay people off, and not expand business. 
and Gretchen Carlson and Stuart Varney on Fox and Friends. He also wants to increase minimum wage, and of course uh, that would be great for people who are working at those jobs, but possibly bad for small businesses who have to pay higher wages. Yeah. Now look, look down the line for a second. Are we going to get real growth in this economy and a whole lot of new jobs created by this increase in government spending paid for by higher taxes? Yes. However, a Center for American Progress study found that employment in small businesses grew more in states with higher minimum wage. Further, studies have shown that raising the minimum wage does not result in higher unemployment. Uh, this repackaged Alan Simpson minus the old the coot and the historical yelling, says Crystal Count. Rich, with focus group lines, you can't tax and spend our way out. Obama-style balance, solutions, shared sacrifice. And those are just IOUs. That's famously spoken by George Bush. Just a, uh, sitting right here in the uh, basement of the uh, Treasury, just looking at a file cabinet. That's where all your so-called trust funny money is. Trust fund money. That was back when he was feeling his oats more. You, you notice the, the difference in tone than I do my... My my current George W. Bush was a little more tired, a little more deflated. Back then, now. he had more of the swagger going. I'm walking through these uh, Treasury uh, file cabinets, wearing my military outfit, I'm just looking through, pulling the drawers, looking at. Oh, look at this! Just a piece of paper. Uh, maybe I'll take this piece of paper down to the uh, local Five uh, Eleven, see if I can't five and dime or whatever it is. And, See if I can't buy myself a slushy. Oh, I can't. Guess this isn't real money. Just pretend trust fund. <laughs> the laugh always gets me. Is, has any other president has directly attacked the basic premise of the faith and credit of the United States? I'm just going to say, for the first time ever, this area, anybody who holds a U.S. bond, you're shit out of luck. Sorry. Turns out I went down and did a secret mission where Geraldo Rivera broke down this wall. We got we got behind the wall. We found it was just a series of uh, of file cabinets. And then we opened up the file cabinets which said U.S. Uh, Social Security Trust Fund. And I expect to see hundreds of billions of dollars in there. Crisp $101,000 bills. I opened up. Just sheets of paper and files. And I say, oh my God, these are just IOUs. There's not, there's not real money in this trust fund. It doesn't exist. It's just been a pigment of my imagination, completely blinded by the light. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, George Bush comparing the IOUs to the Capone vault story, that's pretty masterful. Like, kudos, well, kudos. Thank you. Appreciate that. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
Pundits like to talk about grand budget bargains and shared sacrifice. They push politicians to get tough and show leadership. Usually what they mean by that is making cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Lately, a different kind of cut has been getting attention. It's called means testing, a way to cut benefits for those who can afford it. We've heard millionaires like Tom Brokaw say it. Hey, I don't really need my Social Security check, so the government can keep the money. New York Times columnist David Brooks offered a similar idea. Cut Medicare benefits for the rich a little and use that money to do good things like build roads and fix schools. Well, who couldn't get behind that? And thank you to those rich pundits for stepping up and sacrificing. But not so fast. Brooks was inspired by a column in the New York Times by former Bush staffer Yuval Levin. He proposes to means test Social Security. The top one-third of beneficiaries would get a benefit cut, the middle third a smaller benefit cut. What he doesn't want to tell you is who these people are. The middle third of Social Security recipients have incomes of about $25,000 per year, which is not wealthy. And that's the big problem here. There aren't a lot of super wealthy people who wouldn't notice a cut in benefits, and thus it wouldn't save much money, unless you take a substantial chunk away from people who really aren't very wealthy at all. What could raise serious revenue? Raising taxes on the wealthy, particularly on their investment income. It's funny how elite pundits don't seem to be too excited about that kind of sacrifice. And finally, being a pundit, as we've often noted, means never having to say you're sorry. That worked out well for David Brooks recently. The New York Times columnist got so thoroughly caught up in his own conventional wisdom on February 22nd, flailing against partisan dysfunction in Washington, both parties failing to get something done, and so on, that he veered off into fantasy. Obama, Brooks said, is giving himself credit for seriousness on the fiscal crisis, but he's only talking about tax increases for the rich and, quote, hasn't actually come up with a proposal to avert sequestration, let alone one that is politically plausible, close quote. This struck a lot of people as odd since Obama does talk often about a plan for deficit reduction involving spending cuts as well as tax increases. You don't have to like it, many don't, but to say it doesn't exist is, well, grounds for a correction, right? Not quite. Instead of a correction, Brooks added a little addendum to the piece, explaining that it was, quote, written in a mood of justified frustration over the fiscal idiocy that is about to envelop the nation, close quote. It's that righteous spirit, we're to understand, that led Brooks to suggest that Obama has only considered tax hikes for the rich, which suggestion he allows was not fair. Obama has proposed changes to spending, though they're, quote, not nearly adequate in my view, close quote. His view, naturally, is what Brooks is paid to put forward. But when he makes up facts to fit with it, shouldn't that be caught by an editor? San Francisco's calling us, the Giants and Mets will play. Piazza New York, catch your eye, you straighter, are you gay? We hung about the stadium, we got no place to stay. We hung about the tenderloin and tenderly, you tell about the saddest book you ever read. It always makes you cry, the statue's crying too, and Willie May. I love you, I have a drowning grip on your adoring face 
I love you, my responsibility has found a place Beside you and strong warnings in the guise of gentle words Come wave upon me from the family wide and let absurd You'll take care of her, I know it, you will do a better job Maybe, but not what she deserves Here's a shocking number for you. 40% of Americans now make less, careful now, than the 1968 minimum wage inflation adjusted. Hourly comp compensation has increased way slower than productivity. So what happened? If you look at this graph here, Lewis, you'll see that the line that that kind of levels off is hourly compensation, dating all the way back to, this goes back to 1948. And the line that continues up is productivity. Now, for a while, right up until about 1972-73, hourly compensation was increasing in concert with productivity. And then it stopped and it started to split. So there was a lot more productivity, but the hourly compensation did not keep up with that. So where did the gains from that productivity go? I think we know the answer. Um, the 1%? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And that's reflected where in income inequality, which is we see increasing income inequality. So the minimum wage right now would be sixteen fifty an hour, which works out to $33,000 a year if it had kept up with the growth in productivity. So we've talked about what would the minimum wage be if it kept up simply with inflation. And it would be somewhere around uh, ten seventy an hour, guys. Is it something like that? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So... This is a different metric, which is if it kept up with the amount of productivity per hour of work, it would be sixteen fifty per hour. So in, in other words, right now, $33,000 a year is what that represents today. 40% of Americans are below the 1968 minimum wage based on 1968 productivity. How are we ever going to reverse the increased inequality that we're seeing if that is not tackled head on. I mean, it just, it's, it's amazing. Just trace it back. It might take about that long. Yeah, no, exactly right. So since it started to split, it's been about 40 years. Will it take 40 years to, to undo that at least? Easily. Easily. Natan, I mean, a lot of times these things take longer to undo than to do. Um, it's not that it wouldn't happen because it's not possible. It's just that it's not politically possible. It's, it's, I mean, if very strict regulations, I mean, if you look at why, why is this happening? If any cursory look at history will show you that since the 60s, we've had decreasing labor movements, decreasing unionization rates, which right. lead to less political power for raising the minimum wage, and more and more financial deregulation, which resulted eventually in repealing Glass-Steagall in the 90s. And then we had a horrible financial crisis and the worst income inequality since World War II. So there's no uh, mystery as to why this is happening. It's just a question of politics. And, Lewis, the problem is that the people who most benefited from this have also gained power in this process, making it even less. This is the same thing as with politicians. Why would politicians who get elected and come to power under the current election financing system ever want to change that system? They wouldn't, because the system we have got them into power in the first place, similar as, as, as what we have here. The politicians protect the companies. The companies uh, ensure that the politicians get elected and reelected. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. 
You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is, this, is this the, that hard of a question? Is it that is. It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the, what what's good about this show. What None we know is have... we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Was it on Time? Mag- it was on Time Magazine today. Was it Michael Duffy? I think Michael Duffy, uh, an editor from um, uh, Time Magazine, who uh, was on this morning, making a point that I think uh, goes without saying in terms of of, but but it should be said, and we never hear it in the corporate media that in fact we are all on the dole. We are all on welfare from the US government I've talked about this many times in the past 96% of Americans 96% get government largesse and those 4% I don't know maybe they're just tweeners really wealthy tweeners for a couple years they don't get lo- government largesse in the form of having their their taxes reduced because they own a home or getting some other type of tax break because they're a corporation or because they get their money through um, uh, interest uh, payments or stock sales or because they own a trucking business or on and on and on. Here's the point that you rarely hear. Oh, this wasn't on Morning Joe. It was on... Um, on Matthew's show over the weekend. Let's play it now. You never say, besides entitlements, the even worse word is socialism. But in effect, once you're 65 in this country, when it comes to health, you're guaranteed to be taken care of. We're all socialists from the day we're born. You know, you don't have to be poor or unemployed to be on welfare. We're all at the trough. We're all welfare queens. Your house and your health care and your child. Well, maybe not your child care, but your, you know, my parking is subsidized. You know, you're very subsidized. You know, and, and, and the whole country is built essentially on a series of uh, assistance. Okay, explain programs. that to the skeptic out there who says, what's this guy talking about? Well, whether you're, you don't have to just get direct payments in the form of Social Security or Medicare. You get it in the form of tax benefits for your house or for child care or for commuting or for parking you know uh, but not, so it's a it's a totally subsidized nation one nation subsidized well the big corporations and people make a lot of money are subsidized as well that's right so what I'm saying is it, it, while the entitlement program is what's driving the, the budget the notion that it's a few people it's all of us well the other it's question is more staying on this point I don't know anybody that says I don't want Medicare I don't care if you're a zillionaire. I don't know whether Warren Buffett takes it or not, but people get it because it's free. That's right. And people go in and ask for all kinds of uh, tests and, 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 and probings and, and whether they need them or not because they know it's going to come for nothing. But in essence, it's like we have the worst of both. And now, the only thing I have an issue with is, <clears throat> in my experience, uh, when I have health insurance, I don't go in and I say to the doctor, hey, doctor, you got anything you can stick up my butt? Uh, hey, do you, is there a catheter you can stick in my other holes or something like that? Um, just because I know it's not going to cost me much. That's not the way that people get health care. That's not the way they do it. The reason why uh, we have, and, and frankly, if Medicare was the driver of that, 
then you would not see private insurance industry costs accelerating at a pace faster than Medicare. In fact, it's the opposite. And considering the fact that private health insurance has up to uh, now excluded people who are ill, excluded people with pre-existing conditions, excluded people who are poor, the people who tend to get sick more, yet their rates are increasing, everything he just said about Medicare is exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. We would expect an insurance program that has everyone who is over the age of 65, we would expect their, the cost of health care to be skyrocketing more so than the private health insurance industry. But it's the opposite. It's the opposite. So the guy was right. We're all on the teat. That's what part of being society is all about. The problem is is that we have a cohort of people, and in fact, I would argue that all of us are paying too little in taxes. Or the vast majority of us are paying too little in taxes. At least relative to the historical average, but we still need the same services. And that's why you're part of a society. Because a society can do things more efficiently. So the guy was, you know, 90% right. He just lost it on the Medicare thing so that he was allowed to come back to the show next week. We cut the legs off of our pants. We washed into the ocean. Sit back and wave through the daylight. Sit back and wave through the daylight. Sit on subway grains. Issues of poor men's escape. Fall through the We heard plenty of things about Hugo Chavez in the media this week, but one of the most bizarre takes came from Associated Press business reporter Pamela Sampson on March 5th. She argued that Chavez squandered his nation's oil money on things like health care when he could have gone big. Quote, Chavez invested Venezuela's oil wealth into social programs, including state-run food markets, cash benefits for poor families, free health clinics, and education programs. But those gains were meager compared with the spectacular construction projects that oil riches spurred in glittering Middle Eastern cities, including the world's tallest building in Dubai and plans for branches of the Louvre and Guggenheim museums in Abu Dhabi, close quote. Indeed, what kind of monster chooses the welfare of his people over self-aggrandizing monuments? But seriously, since 2003, when he wrested control of Venezuelan oil production from striking managers who'd severely damaged the economy, Chavez cut poverty by 50 percent, extreme poverty by 70 percent, and made great leaps in health care and education. Even with that social spending, Venezuela managed robust economic growth, 4.2 percent in 2011 and 5.6 percent for the first half of 2012. Of course, during this time, the number of Venezuelans living in the world's tallest building went from 0% to 0%, and the number of copies of the Mona Lisa remained flat at none. 
Guess that would make Chavez's presidency disappointing by AP's standards. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The Atlantic has an interesting article which talks about the Dow Jones Industrial Average hitting record highs. And we, the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average has uh, surpassed 14,164, its all-time highest close in nominal terms, not taking into consideration uh, splits and adjustments, which was seen back in October, October 9th of 2007. When I see this, Initially, I say that's great. You know, my uh, a lot of my retirement account, given my age, is in stocks right now. And when I log in and I look at that, it's great to see the fact that it is rising, rising, rising over the last many years. However, as the Atlantic.com article outlines, there are serious concerns that we are in a bubble right now. the The article does not use that word. I'm using that word, but the article points out that while we've recovered in the stock market in nominal terms the losses of the recent recession there are other indicators which are very concerning what are these indicators household income is very low okay uh, household incomes have not gone anywhere but down since the recession hit the real median u.s household household income which means adjusted for inflation was fifty thousand dollars in twenty eleven and uh, that's the most recent data currently available. That's eight percent lower than what it was in 2007, when the stock, the Dow was was most recently this high at 54,489. Housing prices are very low. They've been increasing slightly lately, but they're still about 25 percent below their 2007 peak. Labor's share of the economy is at a 50-year low. So while stocks have gotten back on track, worker pay has been shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And what that that's also a concern because that means that incomes are depending more on non-directly labor-related factors, which, as we know, can be big factors in a bubble. The good thing is that debt has fallen. So the Atlantic article points to debt falling and, and average debt being a, uh, a reduction in terms of uh, what the average person is holding that's good, debt as a portion of, of disposable income. But there are a lot of things here, Lewis, that are definitely concerning. Household income low, housing prices low, labor share of the economy 50-year low, stock markets high. Uh, are we in a bubble? I don't know. There's, as, as you hopefully know, very few economists and very few um, uh, financial advisors can really predict what is going to happen. But some of the under underlying indicators here are not particularly good. Yeah, well, when you say you're in a bubble, you're implying that that bubble could pop, and once again, we could be in in 2000, uh, 2008, right? right? I mean, that's uh, that's bold. I mean, we know that we don't currently have the mortgage crisis, right? And hopefully we won't. 
Uh, that's a big part of it. I yeah. mean, we assume that because of the new new laws enacted, banks are following stricter protocols. You would hope so. I don't know. Maybe some of the underlying legislation is going to prevent that pop, which we're talking about. We'll see. The next two years are going to be interesting, no matter what. Well, you used to have a hammer, but you left it back at school. And then you ran out of changes, and now you're just a tool. So let's pretend we've heard it all before. You're the one who let us find the store And we're making sure that no one's keeping score Cause we're already in your house And we're coming back for more It's a sign that the economy is healing, exclaims a happy headline. It signals that things are getting back to normal, says a delighted market analyst. And the New York Times heralded it as a golden age. The it they're hailing is the Tao, that mythical and mystical force said by faithful Taoists to be the way, the provider of good fortune, often by magical means. It's the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and this holy measure of corporate stock prices is now smiling warmly on its acolytes. On March 5th, the Dow Jones Average reached a new high, regaining every dime of the $11 trillion that Wall Street investors had lost in the 2007 crash. Worker productivity is zooming, corporate profits are soaring, wealth is flowing like a mighty river, Wall Street is buoyant, all praise the Dow. Unless, of course, your wealth is dependent not on stock prices, but on wages. In that case, you're among the majority of Americans who are concerned about the Doug Jones average. Forget all the buzz about a golden age. Doug, Darcy, Diwana, and all the other Joneses can't even afford to eat at the Golden Arches, for they're still mired in the great job depression that Wall Street's crash caused. Washington rushed to rescue the financial elites, but the Joneses are still getting stiffed by the very elites Washington continues to coddle. United Technologies is typical. The profits of this manufacturing giant have never been higher, and it continues to be blessed with lucrative government contracts. Grand, but how are its workers doing? Only four days after its stock prices reached a record high in February, United Tech's honchos announced the firing of 3,000 workers, on top of the 4,000 they fired last year. This is Jim Hightower saying, the continued separation of the few from the rest of us is revolting in both meanings of that word. All our lives we've been told that trickle-down economics is the right answer. That if we just give all the advantages and the tax cuts to the rich, it'll trickle down to the rest of us and make the rest of us more wealthy as well. Well, let me show you how it didn't work. Here's the first chart. It shows you productivity going sky high from 1947 all the way through 2008. Fantastic. 
but we didn't get all the fruits of our labor there. Why? Around 1980, average hourly compensation and average hourly wage stagnate. They flatline. Now, this should have gone to the people who were productive, but it didn't. It went to the top 1% because the rules were set in their favor and not to help us. Our wages stagnated. Let me give you another chart. Profits go up. GDP goes up. But does that mean the rest of us are getting the help of that GDP and that productivity? No. Again, our wages stagnating and even falling. So the fact that the GDP might be going up doesn't mean we're getting it. The average guy is actually getting paid less than we were before. In fact, income inequality has gotten so bad in this country that now, if I show you another map here of the world, you'll see that the U.S. is in purple. And income inequality in the U.S. is worse than most of the world. Well, the countries that are in red are less equal than we are. That's some parts of Latin America, Southern Africa, some small nations in Asia. But the whole rest of the world has better income equality. And what does that mean? That's equality of opportunity. That's supposed to be the American dream. And the rest of the world is beating us at it. Why? Because in our system, we believe in this nonsense trickle-down economics. And let me show you how that works, right? So it's supposed to be that, hey, you give all of the rich, and then it trickles down on you. And these middle class, lower brackets are all supposed to grow because of that. But instead, what happened? We gave to the rich, and even if you take them at their word that these grew a little bit, which I just showed you they didn't, the rich got much richer. And that was the point of trickle-down economics. The rest of it was all a trick. And even Warren Buffett, the top investor in the world, says, hey, listen, those tax cuts don't mean that we create more jobs. No, that's nonsense. If there's a good investment, we're going to make it anyway. In fact, let me quote Warren Buffett for you. He says, I have worked with investors for 60 years, and I have yet to see anyone shy away from a sensible investment because of the tax rate on the potential gain. People invest to make money, and potential taxes have never scared them off. They've been lying to you the whole time. Oh, give the rich more tax cuts, and they'll create more jobs. They haven't. It doesn't work that way. The top investor in the world tells you that. In fact, we know. Look at the numbers. When we increase taxes under Bill Clinton, we wound up getting 23 million jobs. There were other factors, but yes, he also invested in the middle class, invested in education and opportunity. 23 million jobs. In the Bush years, we cut taxes on the rich. We gave all the advantages to the top 1%. What happened? In those eight years, about a million jobs. That's it. 23 to 1. And of course, we lost that million jobs in the recession that was created right after he left office. We were losing jobs at a rate of about 750,000 a month. So when you take the 10 years that we did trickle down on economics under Bush and through Obama in the, re the recession, we had a net loss of jobs. It didn't trickle down. It's not true. Now, there are other investors like Nick Hanauer, who is a successful entrepreneur and venture capitalist. He says, look, helping the middle class isn't just about helping the middle class. It's about helping the whole country because it helps the entire economy. Let me quote him. He says, the problem with today's severe concentration of wealth, then, isn't that it's unfair, though it might be. It's that it kills middle-class demand. Lasting growth doesn't trickle down. It emerges from the middle-out. See, this is the new middle-out economics. And it makes sense. 
Because 70% of our economy is consumer spending. If the middle class doesn't have money to spend, well, then nobody wins. President Obama even recognized this and ran a campaign ad about it during this election cycle. I believe that the way you grow the economy is from the middle out. I believe in fighting for the middle class because if they're prospering, all of us will prosper. That's the idea of America, and that's why America is the greatest nation on earth. Now, I wish he believed it a little bit more and put it more into practice, but at least he's saying the words, and we're hoping that he catches on because it's true. Now, let me show you how middle out economics works. Now, in this case, instead of giving all the money to the rich and all the advantages to the rich, you give it to the middle class, but when you do, jobs flow down and money also flows up, by the way. Because who's going to get the money from all the new investments in the economy? Of course the top is also going to get it. But if you don't have the middle class demand, you can't have a better economy. And nobody wins. If you do middle out, everybody wins. This is the reality. This is the system that we have to change to and our policies have to reflect. Middle out economics. So don't believe the trick and the lie of trickle down anymore. What we need to do is pursue middle-out economics. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Fort Wayne. <clears throat> I'm calling in response to Scott in Philly. Hi, Jay. Scott in Philadelphia. And um, the fact that he's tired of being beat up because he's a white guy. There have been tens of thousands of people just like my parents and my grandparents and me and my children who have dedicated our life to fighting for equal rights and civil rights and human rights for everybody, everyone. And when my grandmother and her got free of the company store, she kept fighting for civil rights, not just for her family, but for every family. So I'm really, really tired of getting beat up for being a white guy. You know, I, I, his voicemail was so problematic that I, I, I really don't even know where to start, and I probably should have waited to call instead of immediately responding. But I just, real quick off the top of my head, I want to make two points about what he said. First of all, he's continuing like so many people do. He's continuing to miss the point. The point is not about him as an individual white person in our society. It's not about individual acts of racism or bigotry. But the problem is a larger historical systemic problem around structural racism, structural oppression, and the way that inequality is built into the very fabric and system of our institutions in this country. That is the issue. I don't care what Philly, what, what Scott and Philly does in his personal life. You know, that's for him to own and be accountable for. Uh, you know, that's for him to name. That's for him to uncover. That's his work to do. What I am concerned about is a larger system that is directly set up to benefit him as a white man over me as a black woman. Now, that is just a reality. And this is not personal against, uh, you know, Scott. That's just the reality of the situation. And, and the sooner people realize that and get over whatever their personal hurt feelings might be, 
the better, the better chance we will have of actually solving the problem. If people can separate themselves from this on a personal level, this is about a system. And whether he likes it or not, the system is set up. It is for him. The way that he can be helpful is by recognizing that and standing against that and resisting that and saying, you know what, no, I'm not participating in that because I feel like everybody should have the same opportunity as I have as a white person, as a white man with white skin, okay? Everybody should have that privilege. Second point I want to make, you know, he talks about, he said something about uh, feminism being a problem because it's an ism and anytime anybody, you know, attaches themselves to an ism, then you're being a, a bigot. You know, if there's an ist or an ism or uh, ish at the end of, like, if you self-identify as being a fundamentalist, a supremacist, those things are kind of automatically assumed to be negative. But if you self-identify as a feminist or an activist or a humanist, those things are, you know, those things are okay. And it, it's just not true, Jay. If you are an ist or an ism, if you self-define as one thing, then you are automatically excluding all other things, and that makes you a bigot. I, my head is literally spinning from that statement, because let me explain something to Scott and Philly and anybody else who doesn't get this. I'm feminist not because I hate men. I'm a feminist because I love men. I'm a feminist because I believe in equality and power sharing for all human beings, male, female. I don't care. I am about equality and power sharing. And when you are a feminist, that is what you are about. You are simply about saying, no, I do not believe that you should be benefited more than me simply because you're a man. It's about saying you and I should both be benefited. You and I should be working together as equals. That's what it's about. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but again, I'm sure I'll call back and have, have some additional comments to make. Great show today. Um, the oppression show that you did, you know, the racism show that you did previously was also good. Keep up the good work, Jay. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Will in Starkville, Mississippi. I was listening to a um, caller on your most recent podcast who um, was talking about being a coal miner in West Virginia. I was just dumbfounded by the way that he seemed to be willing to compare being indebted to the company store to the middle passage. Um, you know, while there may in fact be black racists, the fact is institutional white racism in America is a serious problem. You know, whatever black racism might exist, you know, is a minor irritant at best. I guess I'm um, a white humanist bigot, according to that gentleman. That's all I have to say. Thank you. This is in response to the March 6, 2013 episode. One of your callers made a comment that was talking about the subject of racism and specifically in dealing with the slavery and indentured servitude. And he made a lot of good points. There were a lot more than just than just African Americans that came to the U.S. as slaves, effectively. He did, however, say something that makes some assumptions that just weren't really kosher or really accurate. He made he was making the comment that any time that someone labels themselves with an ism or ist, 
that they're automatically bigots, that they're automatically discouraging other things and excluding everything else. And he specifically mentioned humanists. Most humanists are not bigots. Most humanists are very open-minded, very accepting, very inclusive. The, the way that they choose to, to live their lives day to day, in a lot of in a lot of cases, tends to be the exact opposite of bigotry. By, by making the blanket statement and specifically listing humanists as one of his examples, he just made a statement that just wasn't true. Thank you and have a good day. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I'm calling uh, in response to Wade's response, I guess, in the privilege episode. Hey, Jay. It's Wade again. And I'd just like to say that the, the excuse that a person who's being arrested might resist that is perhaps the slipperiest of all slopes. Let's say Alalaki gets surrounded by some Interpol agents somehow in Yemen. And is he just going to surrender? Oh, you got me. No, of course not. There's going to be a shootout. He's still going to be dead. And so are innocent people, more than likely. And probably some Interpol agents. Yet again, by utilizing drones, lives were saved. So I've been questioned before because me and actually it turned out several hundred other guys on a military base all matched the description of a you know a short short haired tall slender you know marine looking guy on Okinawa which as you can guess there's plenty of people that match that description on Okinawa right now that, as a matter of fact the other piece about our foreign policy right that, that terrible foreign policy of America like that time that we helped the Afghanis get rid of the Soviets or the time we saved Kuwait from a possible genocidal but certainly brutal Saddam, or that time we helped out in Bosnia, or the fact that South Korea only exists because we stand strong. Good old American foreign policy, always evil, and always after oil, right? In at least one of those cases, the Afghanistan, how we saved them, Zbigniew Brzezinski came out and actually said that we funded and aided the destabilization of Afghanistan. So it's like if I start your house on fire and then I pay a guy to bring a bucket of water over to help you put it out and you end up with a few charred remains of your of your stuff after that effort because of that bucket of water. So to say that, that our foreign policy does not cause this is to miss the point. And so I think the, the overarching problem when you're talking about conservative versus progressive is conservatives tend to tend to prefer authoritarian brute force approaches whereas progressives tend to look for roots of the problem. Thank you. Bye. Hi Jay, this is Jordan in Wisconsin. Just wanted to respond to the last voicemail uh, from the most recent episode where the caller basically asserts that he feels like the conversation about racism has been too heavily focused on the attitudes and behaviors of white people, when racism can and does originate from any and all people groups. And while I certainly acknowledge that this is the case, I would say by and large the reason that this podcast exists is to speak truth to power, and in doing so, encourage the listener to be more conscientious, more informed, and more involved. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here making the case that white male privilege exists and that it informs the power dynamic of this country, because there are episodes 
of this podcast that already do that. There are people a lot smarter than me uh, and with a lot more time to do so, make that case. So if you have a problem with that assertion, I would encourage that you seek out those episodes and give them a listen and, and think about the content there. If you agree with me, though, again, that white male privilege exists and that it informs the power dynamic in this country, then naturally the conversation is going to have to focus on that dynamic to speak truth to power. And that is important because that privilege informing the power dynamic in both business and politics is not an altruistic one. As also well documented on this podcast, the policies being put forth are, are things like the voter ID laws that disproportionately affect and disenfranchise minority voters or transvaginal ultrasounds, etc., etc. To confront these policies and the people who put them forward and the prevalent attitudes and the power dynamic that, that lets these people get to power, we're going to have to spend a lot of time talking about white male privilege. So that would be my answer to his voicemail and why it's not unfair to focus so much on the attitudes and behaviors of white people. I also wanted a quick add that something that comes up a lot when you're talking about this with people is the accusation of white guilt and that it's just your white guilt talking. I think we need to confront this term very harshly because the whole reason it exists is to deflect scrutiny of those who lack the empathy and compassion to acknowledge their privilege and or the hardships of others historically and presently. So certainly as progressives, we need to confront that term and, and don't do anything to enable its usage because I think it, it gives people an easy out when you're trying to talk about these, these tough issues. Lastly and least, <laughs> just quickly about the caller who mentioned the jokes. Hi Jay, Chuck in Salt Lake City. I hope I'm not the only one who saw a little bit of hypocrisy when Jim Cuker is explaining that Jamie Foxx was just telling a joke. And then we got to hear blacking it up, complain that the onion wasn't just telling a joke. I would say to him that if you listen to the clip once more, where they talk about the onion, they in fact do acknowledge that it is just a joke and talk a lot about how it's a joke and offer a in-depth critique, a nuanced critique of it versus the Hannity clip in which there is no nuanced critique and in, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but was doing so just to manufacture outrage. So that would be my answer to him, is that it's a nuanced critique of something that was acknowledged to be a joke versus an attempt to manufacture outrage. Well, that's all I got. Thanks for listening. Everybody take care of each other. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is Jay in New York calling to my car, so the reception's going to stink, I guess. And Wade, I, you know, I realize I kind of like Wade. I like the way he uh, thinks. He seems like a very nice guy. But I totally disagree with him on the violence aspect. 
uh, this vengeance is exactly what his desire for just swift vengeance is is something that, that must be avoided if you've ever served on a jury and you see how important it is to wade through the to wade how about that to wade through the information to see if the person is truly guilty as far as you can tell and to avoid condemning accusing and convicting a an innocent person that is so important that even if we have to let 10 guilty parties off in order to avoid convicting someone who is innocent that's the way it must be and to go and kill this person this uh, this american who was over there in the uh, in the al-qaeda without proper without proper uh, evidence or without a jury or without a trial is infinitely corrupting our justice system and what at least what we're trying for what we're supposed to be trying for okay that's it love your show thank you hi jay it's mara from pittsburgh and i wanted to say something about drone libertarians and and white privilege i wholeheartedly agree with both your and i think it was nathan's response to wade about drones hi jay this is nathan from vancouver washington even if torture works we don't use torture even if violating civil rights makes it easier to get criminals we don't do it but i wanted to make yet a different point i was living in colorado springs on 9-11 and afterward there was a lot of debate about Airport security, no fly list, the Patriot Act, so forth. And I remember there was a man who was interviewed on our local news station saying that he supported the government's restrictions on civil liberties of suspected terrorists because it wouldn't ever happen to someone who looks like me, quote, unquote. Now, it was quite a controversial statement, obviously, but it seemed to me only because someone actually said it out loud. Recently, I was having a debate with a neighbor about the drone program, and he was giving an argument similar to Wade. Hey, Jay, it's Wade again. That Awalaki, for example, had crossed the line, hated America, and was plotting against us. As of the presumed innocence of Awalaki, that's a good point. You, you, you do have a good point there, but the guy was not only didn't make it a secret of what he was doing, he was proud of it. He, he wanted it to, to be known. So, so there you go. I'm sorry. Extraordinary circumstance. He asked me... Quote, do you have any doubt that he was guilty? Unquote. I said, of course, that's not the point. What I personally believe is neither here nor there. What matters is the opinion of a formal jury of his peers. I asked him instead about the possibility of a journalist or a business person or his son in a country like Pakistan being wrongly suspected of being a terrorist. His response gave me deja vu. But the government's not going to kill someone who looks like an American. I actually choked on my drink. Consider another example. Recently, you told a story about an Australian libertarian who said that if the majority of people voted for it, slavery would be okay. Recently, there was a libertarian caller on the majority report who said the same thing, that if people in a state voted for it, that it would be okay for that state to have slavery. I played the clip over and over again because I could not believe that someone actually said that. My point is that I don't think it's any coincidence that all the people in all these examples are white men. And I'd be willing to bet they're all straight, too. I can't imagine anyone who is a member of a group who has been historically oppressed ever saying something like this. The only reason the caller would say that is that he was sure that it wouldn't ever be white men that would be enslaved. 
The only reason my neighbor is not concerned about his son is that he's sure that no one would ever think a white man is an al-Qaeda terrorist. It reminds me of the people in New York who aren't bothered by the stop-and-frisk law because the police wouldn't ever stop-and-frisk someone who looks like them. Or the people in Arizona who aren't bothered by the papers-please law because someone who looks like them wouldn't be asked for those papers. It's a manifestation of unconscious white privilege of the worst kind. And so your caller, uh, Nathan, I said, I think, was exactly right. The reason that we have rights in the first place is to protect against the tyranny of the majority. And we need to be principled about protecting those rights, even when ignoring them, ignoring them might be easier. It was William Blackstone who said, it is better that 10 guilty men go free than that one innocent man be convicted. It may be expedient to convict an innocent person, but it's still wrong, even if you believe the person would never be you. And on a related note, here's a P.S. for Scott. If you're tired of being beat up for being a white guy, stop and think about the people who are actually physically beaten every day for being black, Hispanic, Indian, Arab, female, or gay. No one is saying that you in particular are a bad person or are personally responsible for the oppression of others. If you want to understand, maybe you should think a little bit more about what you unconsciously assume every day about your relationships to everyone else in the world. Don't hate me because I'm a white guy is itself tiresome from someone who on average makes a dollar for every 76 cents I make just because he has a penis. When you no longer have advantages because of, this, of things like skin color, your genitalia, or whom you love, then we can talk about how badly you've been treated. And saying that if you're an ist or an ism, you're a bigot is so ridiculous, it's hard to know where to start. Semantically, adding an ist or an ism to a word is just a way of turning an adjective into a noun, either describing a person or an idea. Modern becomes modernist or modernism. Impression becomes impressionist or impressionism. Guitar becomes a guitarist. Solo becomes soloist. Impressionists are not bigoted people against people who paint classic portraits. And soloists are not bigoted against people who don't sing. If an ist or an ism has a negative connotation, that's because the actual people of that group have behaved in such a way as to make it negative, or the idea itself is unjustifiable. Being a racist has come to mean that you are a person who favors people of your own race for no other reason than their race. Being a feminist, on the other hand, does not mean that you favor women just because they are women. It could have developed that meaning, but it didn't. Just like racist could have been a noun to describe someone who races, but it didn't. You say you're tired of being beaten up because you're a white guy. Well, I'm tired of white guys complaining that they're victims. No one is saying that you in particular haven't had a hard life or that your parents didn't struggle. What we are saying is that if you open your eyes and try to see things from another's perspective, maybe you will come to appreciate some of the ways, even if they are small or subtle, in which your life is easier because you are a white guy. And if you can't think of any, I can provide you a list. Thanks, Jay, for everything you do. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I wanted to wrap up today's show by discussing something that I think sort of ties together all of these issues, drones, war, race, class, privilege, and so on. And, you know, we've been beating up on Wade and Scott a lot today, and I'm going to pile on just a little bit, but not actually too much, uh, by talking about a comment that Wade made a couple of weeks ago that got me 
thinking. So this is what he had to say about preserving human, uh, no, I mean, American lives a couple weeks back. Whatever utilizes the best method to disrupt our enemy with, with the minimal cost in, in American lives, I'm support. I, I, I'm sorry to say it, but I, I, I care much more about American lives than I do Afghani lives. That may be terrible to some of you, but it's just how I feel, and a lot of Americans feel. Y'all know that. So as you would imagine, on the next episode, a caller had called in to rebuke that kind of thinking from Wade, which I definitely agree with. You know, I don't think that uh, people's lives in other countries are worth less than American lives. Um, but the exchange still got me thinking in general, because the fact is, Wade is actually right. People do generally put a higher value on the lives of their countrymen than on the lives of others. So why is that? I put a little thought into it. This is what I came up with. Let me know what you think. So morality comes in at least two different forms, and people have generally the instinctual morals to, for instance, take care of their children, because that's how their genes get passed on, so it's evolutionarily beneficial to do that, so that's instinctual. But the morality of treating people who are different uh, race or nationality from you and treating them equally is not necessarily instinctual because we've evolved to trust people who look similar to us and be wary of those who are different from us because that's an evolutionarily beneficial way to think in a world of like tribal conflicts and so on when you're going to get attacked by the people across the river who look slightly different from you because they might take your land or resources or whatever. So knowing to treat people equally, even if they look different from you, is more of an intellectual morality rather than an instinctual one. That's the one that we've sort of, once you can look outside yourself, then you can recognize, hey, you know, it really makes sense that everyone's the same. So since we're tribal, we've developed the instinct to, uh, you know, again, for instance, uh, value the lives of our own families over the lives of others. And this is practically universal, and it stands to reason that the value of the lives of those close to us beyond our family that we're most connected to and dependent on, so like family, friends, neighbors, and then even beyond those in our city, those in our state, those in our country, that we would treat them sort of similar. similarly. We all live within the same infrastructure of our society and our government. We all benefit and gain strength from each other in, by being in groups the way we are. It's just how we're built is to be sort of tribal. So it's actually quite logical to have the instinctual affinity with those who share your society and have uh, less feelings for those in foreign countries who aren't in a position to help us, like societally speaking, the way we're structured right now. So that's speaking instinctually, and it has its own sort of selfish morality to it. It's, it's sort of similar to the way most people understand that it's not necessarily immoral to steal bread if you're using it to feed your starving family, right? So it's not a clean morality, but it's there somewhere. So speaking intellectually and objectively, in a way like an alien who came to Earth would see it, you could just say, like, yeah, we should be able to understand that there are no true differences between people around the world. And that's thinking of it intellectually and really objectively and selflessly. So from Wade's personal perspective, looking at people very subjectively, some people are literally worth more to him. They have a higher value because they are connected to him, either family or friends and, you know, and, and so on. And so societally, city, state, nationally, people in your own country, they bring literal value to your life in a way that people in foreign countries don't when 
the you know human species is divided by countries the way it is. Now, however, looking at people around the world objectively, we'd all agree that no nationality, race, color, creed, gender, etc. of people are actually worth more than any other. So the question is whether you're going to look at the world selfishly or objectively. And it's not really a difference of opinion on a single question of morality with which you know people can just disagree. It's literally two different questions of morality. It's two different paths of morality that you can kind of understand both. But one is sort of unexamined and instinctual, and the other is intellectual and reasoned. And, you know, I think instincts are great, and they've done a lot for humanity to get us where we are today. But one of the great things that our instincts have let us evolve is our intellect. So we have to actually make sure we use that intellect if we want to continue to improve as a species. Which is why it's sort of a recurring theme on this show for me to encourage people to really think about why they think what they think, why they feel what they feel, rather than just going with their, their instincts. Because instincts are only good up to a point when there's actually a greater, higher morality beyond that that we can achieve only through looking at things intellectually and really reasoning through them rather than just going with our gut. That is going to do it for today. As I said before, if you want to chime in with your own thoughts, leave your messages at 202-999-3991. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought lines are black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only